Well, it was a real delight to be able to uh, see some of our family uh, over the last week and uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, devote some of our time. And uh, we had two days of driving out and then two days of driving back. So on the way back, we got to uh, hear David uh, in his sermon from last Sunday. It's a blessing for the ministry of those who serve behind the scenes to record that and make it available on the web. And uh, by the way, that is a good thing. If you're not not able to be here on any particular week, you can always uh, listen to the messages from the previous weeks online. All right, let's uh, bow in prayer before we uh, look into the Word of God. I've decided not to start a series today just because I didn't have as much time to prepare uh, for that. So uh, coming in the middle of the week here. So let's pray. Father, it is in Christ alone that we find life, that we, it is in Christ alone that we find uh, the reason to boast and uh, to celebrate. Uh, Lord, we certainly are not here to celebrate and boast about ourselves. We're here to make much of you. And so we pray today as we look into your word that you might open our ears, that you might fill our hearts with your truth, with the wonders of who you are, and that you then may open our mouths to speak forth your praise and to make Christ known. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One of the things I do now in my older years is I see doctors more often than I used to. So I was talking to one of my doctors not too long ago, and uh, I was asking about her family. And she just has described her family to me in the past. Uh, she's married to another fellow doctor, and they have two boys. And uh, so she described her boys to me. You could tell she's very proud of them and uh, spoke very lovingly of them. As she said, her younger son is, is um, very well uh, liked by so many friends, and uh, he's a, a very outgoing. And the other son, the older one, she said, is one who's rather quiet. But she said this interesting statement. Uh, she, she says, he does everything well. And then she went on to expand what that meant. And she said, without being boastful, she just was stating facts. I think that's the way I understood it. She said he really gets good grades. He's very good academically. He's um, very good at sports. He plays several sports. He plays the violin and the piano, and he's very good at those. And uh, he's a talented artist. He enjoys painting. She says his painting is amazing. And she says, beyond that, he's really good in the kitchen. He cooks very well. I'm like, wow, uh, that is quite impressive. And then I thought to myself, well, I understood what she says. He does everything well. She doesn't literally mean that because I would think that does he always love his brother as he loves himself? I mean, uh, I don't think brothers always get along, but I know what she meant. I know what she meant. In a relative sense, he does everything well. Well, I would say probably it's true that many of us do some things well. And then there are some of us who do many things well. But who do you know that fits the description that this person does everything well? Well, those who are closest to Jesus Christ were impressed with him and had no hesitation affirming that Jesus does all things well. 
even if those who encountered him only for a brief period of time, even they were able to judge and assess Jesus in the sense that he was totally unique. There's none like him. He's one of a kind. Everything he did, he did well. And this is highlighted in a very interesting passage that I've been meditating on uh, this week in Mark chapter 7. So let's do something different here. We're going to just take a passage in Mark chapter 7. It's page 1195 in your pew Bible. Seventh chapter of Mark. And we pick up an account in which Jesus now has moved beyond Jerusalem. He's moved beyond Galilee, which is the northern part there. And he is now along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, in what would be called non-Jewish territory, if you will. Beginning in verse 31. And again, Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they entreated him to lay his hands Upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them them orders, this is Jesus now, he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. I'd like to take this passage and unfold from it three different ways in which Jesus does all things well. First of all, I'd like to point out that Jesus does all things well even when what he does doesn't make sense to us. Now, if you have little to no knowledge of geography of the Holy Land, and that's probably most of us, I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge until I went to Israel and actually began to get my bearings as to where what was where, but uh, you will likely, because of our lack of knowledge of geography, you're going to be very likely to miss out on a very fascinating insight into this text of Scripture. If you look at verse 24 of seven, chapter 7, Previously in the chapter, we read that Jesus traveled into this northern Gentile territory along the coast called Tyre. It's in the northwest area from, let's say, the Sea of Galilee. So if we understand this, my fist to represent the Sea of Galilee, this is the Jordan River and this is the Dead Sea, let's say, in the lower part of my arm. Well, the Mediterranean Sea is over here. And so what the text is saying is that Jesus left the Galilee area and he went all the way up on the coast to Tyre and eventually to Sidon. And so in going there, he's headed northwest. And 
Then he made his way down to the Sea of Galilee again, again to this area here. And then he's going to go to Decapolis, which is further southwest on this side of the Jordan River. So those are sort of the bearings of where he goes. If you notice verse 31 now, that was previously where he had been. Then verse 31, And again Jesus went out from the region of Tyre, came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, this is nothing short of odd. Because what he's saying is that Jesus went up here, and then he wanted to go to Decapolis, which is way down here, but first he went up here, and then went down there. Now, if I were to tell you that my wife and I were going to make another trip, and we want to go see more of our family, we want to go see our son up in Boston area, and if I were to tell you that in order for us to go there, we are going to take the route that would take us through Philadelphia, so we'll go to Philadelphia from Long Island, and then, uh, then we'll make our way up 95 and go to Boston. And you'd look at us and think, what, you got a weird GPS in your phone? What in the world? What, why would you do that? Wouldn't make any sense. And I would suggest to you that if you look at what Jesus actually did there, his traveling and it was really an unusual route. That's a nice word to use, strange, odd, whatever you want to say. Uh, his itinerary was peculiar. You sort of scratch your head and say, why would he do that? Why would he go north, south, north, uh, in a sense, in a northeast direction in order to go southwest? Well, that's for question number one. Why would Jesus, second question is, why would Jesus adopt an unusual methodology here in how he dealt with this deaf man, the man who spoke with difficulty? Why didn't just, Jesus just sort of lay his hands on him in keeping with the request of those who brought this man to be healed by Jesus. Why did he put his fingers into the man's ears? Why did he touch his tongue after he spat on his hand? Uh, could he not have just healed the man from a distance? Couldn't he just said, be opened? Not even touch him at all? Why did he choose to come so close to this man when earlier Jesus healed people without even being in the same vicinity. Didn't even need to be there. That's the second way we scratch our head at this text and say, hmm, that's a bit odd. It's a bit peculiar. There's a third question that raised in my mind, and I'm looking through this text, it's rather odd in the text. It says, why did Jesus tell the crowd who witnessed what this happened in this amazing healing, why did he tell the crowd not to tell anyone else what they saw? Verse 36. You ever wonder about that? I mean, why would he tell somebody not to tell good news? Why would Jesus use his authority to stifle any kind of enthusiastic reporting of those who witnessed this incredible display of his compassion and power? I had a lot of questions as I read through this text. And I think the answer can be at least part of the answer may include this important element. Jesus does whatever he chooses. He's not bound by tradition. He's not bound by limitations. He's not bound by expectations. As a matter of fact, he never has been and he never will be in bondage to the demands of those who are around him. He does what he chooses to do. 
and he freely chooses to do what he thinks is the best in order to bring glory to his Father and to, in many ways, bring good to those who sincerely love him and who are called according to his purpose. So if I go back through and I try to offer some just real quick thoughts about the questions that I've raised here that in the text seem to be a little odd or strange, maybe there are some answers here. I'm just throwing them out there. This is possible answers. I'm not saying this is definitively. But looking at the first question about why he took such an unusual route or itinerary, some of the, the, the deeper minds and the real scholars have thought about this as well, and they've suggested that Jesus went out of his way intentionally so that he could spend quality time with his disciples. And some have suggested the amount of time it took was probably about eight months that he devoted in going sort of out of the way and up along the, in, in a route that no one would have ever expected him to go so that he might better prepare his disciples for the crisis that was about to brew, about to unfold regarding his death, resurrection, and ascension. And that at this time, there was limited, his time was limited, and he knew that the growing opposition among the Jewish people was starting to increase. And so perhaps he was trying to get them into a place where he could spend more time and help them grow stronger and prepare for what was ahead for them as well. Possible answer. Not sure I know the full answer. Second question. What might be a possible answer in that area? Why did he choose to deal with this man the way he did? Well, it's possible that he chose that approach in this unusual manner because of the unique situation of dealing with this man and what the man was facing. Here you have a man who couldn't hear. And therefore, it proved beneficial for Jesus to use in some ways a simple form of sign language, if you will. He's actually helping him to understand, because it's hard to communicate with this gentleman, otherwise, showing him a sort of a sign language to help strengthen his faith, to elicit from within this man a response of trust. You can trust me, I'm going to be dealing with you in these areas where you're lacking, where you're struggling, where you have need. Possible? Possible answer? Maybe it does make sense? And thirdly, question. The question that has to do with why he would tell the crowd not to share this with anybody else. Well, it's possible that one of the, because he didn't want, it, he didn't want him to, to them to define who he was. He didn't want his reputation to be only that which they are making known and built, building, in a sense, this uh, incorrect or maybe misleading uh, thoughts about what the Messiah would be like. They wanted, he wanted his true identity to be made known through the cross that he was about to suffer, which was he wanted to make sure that he was known as the suffering Messiah. Now, we could con conjecture and offer many, many different answers to these questions, but here's my point. Jesus does all things well. We can land on that point. We can't fully explain why he's doing all these things, but we can be clear on that. And we shouldn't second-guess Jesus regarding whether or not he does things well. But let's be honest. Don't many of us insist that Jesus only do those things that make sense to us? That we ask him to do only those things that seem appropriate to us at the time? We have to sort of back up and remember that discipleship, true discipleship, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
involves the principle that we are not here to merely try to bend God's will to our will, but we must bend our will to God's. And our choices need to align with whatever He chooses for us. That's not an easy thing to learn, is it? But the Scripture is very clear. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Do you have a problem with that? That God does whatever He pleases? And also, David read earlier for us today in our service, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and earth. You see, God can do with His people whatever He chooses to do. Whatever pleases Him. Because what? In Isaiah 64 and Jeremiah 18 and Romans 9, we read that Jesus, God, our God is a potter and we are the clay. Anything if you've never seen a person who's sitting at a wheel, a potter's wheel, with their thumbs and with their fingers, they're manipulating that clay and they have the ability to shape it, to indent it, to mold it, to expand it wherever that potter wants. That's the same true, true with God. In whatever way He wants, He can do whatever He chooses. It's His prerogative. He's the potter and we're the clay. I was thinking back to a time in my life when I was about in sixth grade, I guess. I have two older brothers, younger sister. We live in a very humble little ranch house. It's not very impressive in any way, I didn't think at the time. Uh, we only have three bedrooms in the house, and so obviously we're a little tight. And um, there's a full basement, no garage. It's just a very basic house, a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, you know, and uh, one bathroom. And so um, my parents, probably without even telling us, began doing a lot of uh, careful thinking and planning and sought out the help of an architect and began to think, we, we need a bigger house. We want to uh, provide a little bit uh, better place for our growing family to uh, have more space and things. And so they decided, are we going to move from this location, which is on top of a hill, the great view of the valley out in the uh, uh, Charleston, where I grew up, Charleston, West Virginia, uh, or do we go somewhere else and give up the view? And so they decided, we're staying here, and we're going to remodel. We're going to upgrade the house, expand it, and make all these changes. Well, I can remember as they began to do things in our house, I mean, they just ripped that house apart. It was a mess. And uh, we, I remember at a time when we had no kitchen anymore upstairs, so we had to, they set up a temporary kitchen in the basement, and we would sit at this table there, and uh, I don't know how my mom used to prepare meals there, but anyway, she did. There was a stove down there they had relocated. And while we're eating dinner, there would be this little, sprinkling of sawdust that would just sort of float its way down during dinner, you know, and landing on the food and stuff. It was just, the house was a wreck. It was noisy. It was dirty. All kinds of men coming in and out of the house all the time. And, and uh, it was just a big, big upheaval in our home. But looking back on it, at the time it didn't make any sense. Why are we doing this? But all oh, the blessings that we enjoyed as a result of that, of all the improvements they made in the house that uh, ended up being uh, a very, very wonderful place to grow up with. Everybody had plenty of room to do whatever they needed to do. 
What I'm trying to say here is that we who are seeking to follow Christ are given an opportunity. Do we really believe that He does all things well? Even when it doesn't make sense to us at this time? You see, the Lord Jesus didn't necessarily explain everything to His disciples. Because what we're called to do is to trust Him. And not merely have Him explain all the reasons why. What kind of master are we called to follow? Jesus is our sovereign King. Or do you rather say, well, I'm going to follow someone who's not necessarily a sovereign king. I want to follow someone who's more like a customer service representative. Who's expected to maybe cater to all my whims, all my desires, and have make me come out to where my result is that I'm satisfied with how things are going. It's a big difference. And so we're reminded in this text that Jesus does all things well, even when they don't make sense to us. But also in this text, we learn also that Jesus does all things well for those who aren't able to do the same. Did you notice how tender Jesus, tenderly Jesus approached this gentleman who had such challenges? This man with his disabilities, he was cut off from people. He was cut off from conversations and from being able to have be understood by people. He, he also couldn't understand what people were saying around him. And so um, it, it's a very difficult plight. And, and oftentimes I think we think that losing our sight is one of the worst forms of debilitation. And yet medical authorities and the deaf themselves will tell you otherwise. As difficult as blindness is, the blind are not as likely to suffer the social pain to suffer the stigma experienced by people who are deaf. Again, this is what I've read, this is what I've been told. For many times there will be people who will gawk at a, a, a deaf person. They have impatient stares from people who are not aware of what their condition is. And one of the most humiliating aspects of deafness is being thought of as being ignorant or stupid. Even though they're probably brilliant or they have a tremendous abilities to uh, have a high IQ or whatever. It's not a level there. IQ is ability to be able to speak in ways that people understand them and to be able to hear what's going on around them and interact in ways that people are accustomed to. So when Jesus couldn't get, when other people couldn't get through this young man, Jesus sought him out, takes him aside, and privately communicates to him without words what he intended to do. Touches the man at his point of need. And he commands his ears to be open. He removes the restraint of this man's speech. And with only one word that Jesus utters, this man is once again able to hear every word again. He's able to speak clearly. What a wonderful portrait of a loving, compassionate Savior. Jesus involved Himself in restoring this man's hearing, bringing him back into contact with people, and most importantly, with Himself. Jesus does all things well for those who aren't able to do the same. Again, this is, I think, Jesus is being portrayed in this, 
important passage in Mark's gospel as one who is bridging a gap, a gap that exists between heaven and those of us who have chosen to go our own way and refuse to walk on heaven's path. And those of us who now, in in doing so, suffer with the effects of the fall and that we now are spiritually deaf in our natural state. We are unable to ask for help, unable to hear the words of warning and words of loving assurance. This is where this man was. He was left to himself to interpret the actions that he observed as best he could, and yet Jesus reached out to him. Jesus, with compassion, went over and touched him. Jesus looked to heaven, reminding us that, of course, Jesus has always enjoyed unending communion with the Father. With that one exception, when Jesus was crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's obvious that Jesus, at that moment, has had enjoyed this constant eternal communion with the Father, and the deaf man only had communion with himself. He had no one else around him who could truly understand him, no one else around him who he truly could connect with in understanding them effectively. And Jesus' gaze at heaven was a natural expression of his communion with the Father and saying, Oh, how I feel the weight of sadness. Oh, the, uh, the, the concern as he sighs there. Did you notice that? Verse 34. <sighs> he sighs. And about, by the way, there's another record of that in chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. Why is he sighing? Well, I think it's two things. I think it's one is because of the hardest hearts of people around him who don't get it and don't understand, who, who cannot seem to embrace him for who he really is, so clearly revealed in these ways, and also because he looks at the physical effects of the fall, along with the spiritual impact of the fall. See, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He's bridging that gap. And only He can remove every hindrance so that spiritually deaf sinners can hear the effectual call of God. You see, only Jesus is able to give defiant, spiritually dead sinners hearing ears. Only Jesus can make the soul who at one time ridicules and despises and ignores the symphony of the gospel to later on take delight in listening to the sweet strains of the gospel song. Jesus is the only one who can heal the spiritually impeded. He can draw the most unlikely sinners to call upon God. He puts within the mouth of someone whose speech perhaps is filled with obscenities, with vulgarities, with talk mostly about oneself or whatever, anger, angry speech, he can put within that mouth that which is singing a new song of praise unto our God. My friends, what we ought to be thinking about in reading this text is that Jesus does all things well, therefore, never despair. His power is not limited, and His mercy... In his compassion, sighs deeply for those who have yet to truly hear the call of the gospel. 
He does, he does all things well, even for those who are unable to do them for himself, for themselves. He does all things well, even by calling those who cannot hear and giving them the ears to hear. Otherwise, isn't it true that your story, my story is, would we ever have heard if Jesus hadn't opened our ears? It's amazing to think of his grace applied in our own lives. But thirdly, I want us to consider that Jesus does all things well, even at every stage of our lives. I find it curious that Mark is the only gospel writer who records this particular account of Jesus healing this deaf man in the Decapolis area. And even though they were commanded, all these people around there who witnessed it, they were commanded not to tell anyone, obviously they couldn't refuse the opportunities to share and to proclaim what Jesus had done. And I think this is significant because Mark is writing to a non-Jewish audience. He's writing sort of to a Roman audience, a sophisticated audience. And people who saw this as non-Jews, they were so impressed, they couldn't help but talk about it. Notice what they said there. They broadcast to their neighbors, their friends, their family. Verse 37, Jesus has done all things well. He makes even the deaf and the dumb to speak. Now again, we don't know if these, these crowds were made up of people who were true believers or not. doesn't really say. But what they said was profoundly true. Jesus truly does all things well. And the miracle they witnessed bore out that truth that Jesus in His touch, in His words, in His prayer, does all things well. And in His compassionate dealings with the man, a man who was alienated from so many others, displayed that Jesus clearly, no question, He does things well. Can you say that about your past? And looking over your shoulder and considering where you've been, where you've gone, what what path you've been walking down, things that have happened. Can you say, in looking at your life, do you agree with those bystanders that Jesus does all things well? Has Jesus opened your ears to the gospel? Has Jesus opened your tongue so that you might make the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord? Does it cause you to be astonished beyond measure at the grace and power and mercy of Christ applied into your life and heart? How excellent are Jesus' ways. It seems like that's what Mark is trying to, to point out here. He liberates sinners from worthless idols. He grants them the gift of His indwelling Spirit. And then He transforms and works in their hardened, corrupted hearts. How great is His mercy. How great is His dealings with unworthy sinners like us. My question to you this morning is, given where you've come from in your past, can you know that there's a time in your life where you say, I've heard Christ calling me. I've heard the Gospel and I've responded And therefore, I am committed to Christ and I am following here and I hear His voice calling me as I read the Word of God. 
That's what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. And how does he know if, we, if they really hear his voice? Then they follow me. I wonder if some of us this morning can say, yes, there's evidence in my life that I have truly heard the voice of Christ and He's given me new ears to hear and I am following Him. Not that I'm perfect, but that my heart desires to honor and love and serve Christ and to give myself to Him day by day. That is the work of God's grace. If that's never happened in your life, my friend, it could happen in your life even today. Don't refuse to hear Christ. He calls to you through the Gospel. He calls you to come and follow Him. Lay aside everything and follow Christ because He does all things well. How about the days between now and the days in which Christ will return? Can you trust that God will do all things well? With perfect wisdom, do you believe that Jesus truly imparts to us what we need and that in His perfect wisdom, He withholds what He feels is best? One of the things that we're doing now in our growth group is reading another Jerry Bridges book and discussing it together. It has a very interesting title. It's called Respectable Sins. Sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? Respectable Sins. But it's quite helpful, quite practical, quite convicting. And the chapter we're actually going to discuss today after lunch, and over lunch I guess, is a, a chapter on the sin of discontentment. And he defines discontentment as uh, it arises from ongoing and unchanging circumstances that we can do nothing about. Frustration that's usually a result of some immediate event that has blocked our plans and desires. And in the book, uh, it's a very helpful section here where Jerry Bridges himself talks about that he was born with some challenges with his eyesight, his vision, had some issues that he never was very good with his vision. And also his hand and eye coordination was something he had to struggle with all of his life. He couldn't play ball like everybody else. He had things he had to live with. And he said they easily could have become very forms of frustration to him and discontentedness. And then he talks about how he learned a very important lesson in his life about how do we get to the point of not just trying to say, well, I'll just forget all the things I'm frustrated about and discontented with. Uh, maybe I'll just go into being busy and do something else to get my mind off those things. Maybe I'll just be aloof from Christ or a I'll just sort of surrender and say, well, I guess it's just case sarah, sarah, things are, you know, you just have to sort of deal with it. This is the life we live in. And you have this kind of uh, low-level frustration that goes through life. And he says, no, that's really not the best way. He says, one, um, to deal with disappointing circumstances, he says, Amy Carmichael wrote a helpful poem, and he talked about the fact that uh, uh, we don't just resign ourselves to those things that we don't like in life, to somehow grudgingly say, well, I had no choice in the matter, so I'm just going to deal with it. He goes on to say, we must rather accept the fact that God has ordained these things. Her final comment was, in acceptance lies peace. 
Learning to accept that what God ordains for us, what God has chosen for us, what God sovereignly has brought into our path or directed our path or let these things He has done for His wise purposes, He never fully explains them to them, but we must learn to trust Him. He says, acceptance means that you can accept your circumstances from God, trusting that He unerringly knows what is best for you and that in His love, He purposes only that which is best. Having then reached a state of acceptance, you can ask God to let you use your difficult circumstances to glorify Him. In this way, you have moved from the attitude of a victim to the attitude of stewardship. Lord, here I am. This is where you've led me. Now use me for your glory. What a big difference that makes in how we deal with life. And and the underlying assumption again, how do I get to that point of acceptance? He does all things well. Not some things, not most things, not a couple of things, all things well. And so all week I've been saying, Lord, why do my kids live so far away from me? Why are they there? Well, I've got one on the other side of the world now. What, what is going on here? And the Lord, I'm reminded all week long, I do all things well. You see what? The great shepherd of the sheep doesn't make mistakes. He leads his lambs of his flock by the right way. And all his lambs are under his watchful eye. Let's pray. Our Father, we again bow before you today, thanking you for the wondrous gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, to see Christ operating in his compassionate, loving, tender ways, revealing his power, revealing his sovereign hand, doing as he chooses to do. Lord, we are left to be again filled with wonder and amazement at Him. Oh, how we thank You that He has graciously opened the ears of so many of us. He's opened our tongues and given us a new song of praise to You. And we pray today, Father, for any who are here among us today who are hearing the call of Christ to come, to follow Him, to receive Christ, to trust in what He has done for them in His life, His sinless life, His death as a substitute for them on the cross, in His burial and in His resurrection from the dead to impart new life. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has been pushing You aside, who has been ignoring You, who has been trying to include some other form of devotion in their life other than surrendering completely to you lord i pray that this would be the day that they do so and father i pray for those of us who hear your voice we as your sheep help us we pray to trust you as one who does all things well help us to find peace in acceptance of what you have ordained what you have chosen what you have withheld what you have brought into our path and how you've guided us and how you will guide us. Lord, this is not something we naturally are able to do. Help us, we pray. 
by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.